as some of the shuffle takes place, uh, I'm not a coffee drinker and I don't want to be a buzzkill here, but I went out after first service really excited to see what green coffee looks like. Spoiler alert, not green. It is just the color of normal coffee. I like stood there while someone was filling it up and I'm like all excited. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's green coffee. She's like, it's normal coffee, man. All coffee beans are green. And I was like, this is, this is a bummer. Um, you can laugh at me. I don't care. Um, I want to say thank you really quickly to those who came and helped at the, at the churchwide cleanup yesterday. Um, thanks for lending your, your time and your hands and your strength to doing that alongside us. I also want to just give a quick shout out to Carrie Broyles, our executive pastor who organized that and had it all um, laid out. Yeah. Our, our staff who did a lot of the legwork to have everything ready so that when you showed up yesterday, if you came to help, it wasn't one of those situations like you go to help a friend move and you get there and you realize they haven't packed. So you're helping them pack and move. Um, Carrie and our staff had done a lot of work to, to execute that plan yesterday, and thank you to everyone who came to help with that. Two other things happening later this month. The first is that on October 30, Sunday, October 30th, we'll be doing one joint worship service over at the high school. When you leave today, you're going to get one of these little flyers with some information on it, time, place, the reminder that we won't be here that morning. But there's one thing that's not on here, and that's that that morning there won't be Kids Point or Child Care. We'll worship all together. Our kids will be there. Wiggles are f- totally fine. Um, we want to be able to celebrate truly as one service, and that's going to include our, our kids. And so you can pick one. of Well, this will be handed to you on your way out, just as a reminder that that's coming two weeks from today. And then on October 31st, we're doing a trunk or treat at Manor Hill. Um, we could use trunks and candy for that. You can sign up your, your vehicle, your trunk on our website. You can just bring candy on Sunday mornings and put it in the bin out there. That way we're ready to go on October 31st. Two, oppor- two more opportunities this month to do something alongside our whole congregation rather than split out in our three different services. We hope that you'll take part with us. Sound good? Awesome. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open to two places. The first is Acts chapter 9. We're continuing through the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts 9, 1 through 31 this morning. But the other place, if you would sort of um, mark this second place, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in Acts 9, we're going to flip over to 1 Timothy, and then come back to Acts chapter 9. But I, I want us to have 1 Timothy ready to go. And as you get yourself settled there, I also want to just start with what will be sort of like the squirmy, uncomfortable part of this morning's sermon, and that's the idea of conversion. We sort of shy away from that word in Christian circles, like it feels a little bit uncomfortable to us. We often talk about Christianity, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Like we're kind of hedging our bets against having to use the word conversion with people. Um, I don't think we need to do that. I don't think we have to be quite so uncomfortable with the idea or just even the word conversion. The reason for that is, even just in like a non-theological, just a strict dictionary sense, conversion simply means to change from one thing to another. That could be a change in your personal beliefs. It could be a change in your religion. It could be like I've been kind of slowly grinding away on Kurt Huber over the last six years to convert from Bills fan to Chiefs fan. Still a work in progress. You can all join me in that today. 
But to change one thing to another, water converts state from solid as ice to liquid. It can also convert to gas. It's change in some form or fashion. The New Testament tells us that when we are saved by God's grace, we are changed. We go from old to new. There's a converting that takes place in the midst of that. Call that whatever you want. You can call it salvation. You can call it transformation. You can call it conversion. But even to go back to not a religion, it's a relationship. Yes, that is true. It is a relationship, but the relationship changes everything. There's a, there's a conversion that takes place because that relationship with Jesus will shift everything about the way you think, the way you, like your identity, what motivates you, the things that you do. Everything changes when we come into this relationship. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, compelled by the grace of God and the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit, conversion is the first exercise of the new nature in ceasing from old forms of life and starting our new life. And we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 9 what is Scripture's most well-known conversion, that that takes place on the road to Damascus in the life of Paul. And so if you've got Acts 9 open in front of you, I'm going to invite you to follow along. We're going to read through this once, just the whole thing, and then we're going to circle back around and work through it in parts. But this is what Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 31 says. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who call on this name and came here for the purpose of taking him as prisoner to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger. 
and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in number. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word for this morning and the opportunity for us to gather together as a church family. God, I pray that your spirit present in and among your people would take your word and open our eyes to the truth of your son that we might glory in the gospel alongside each other. God, would you speak to us, do more than just allow our brains to take information in this morning, Lord, but would your spirit take the truths of your word and press them deeply into our hearts. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we could do a number of things through this passage. But there are other places in the New Testament, in the epistles, where Paul has his own sort of reflections on this experience that happens on the road to Damascus. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he gives us one of those. And so if you marked that, I want to invite you to flip over to 1 Timothy 1 because we're going to allow Paul's words about his salvation experience to guide how it is that we engage with Acts chapter 9 this morning. Toward the end of his life, in a letter to one of his most trusted ministry partners, Paul provides the following reflection on this day from Acts chapter 9. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 through 17 says this. I, that's Paul, give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Now Paul said a lot there, but the piece that's going to sort of guide and drive us this morning is this. I received mercy for this reason. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience, literally unlimited long-suffering as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. 
Paul says about this day recorded in narrative fashion from Acts chapter 9, that God saved him, that he might be an example of the Lord's unlimited long-suffering to those who would believe. That's how I want to approach this this morning. What example does Paul provide for us? John Stott says this, provided that we distinguish between the historically particular and the broadly universal, between the dramatic outward accompaniments and the essential inward experience, what happened to Saul remains an instructive case study in Christian conversion. Moreover, Christ's display of unlimited patience toward him was meant to be an encouraging example to others. Distinguishing between the historically particular and the broadly universal. That's what we've been trying to do throughout our study of the book of Acts. What is unique and particular to the events that took place in the life of the early church and what is broadly universal and therefore applicable to us today? We're going to look at Saul's salvation experience and try to disentangle those two things. What's unique to what happened to him on that road that day and what is broadly universal about salvation and conversion to Christians today? My hope this morning is that the example of Paul's salvation would be an encouragement to us, a reminder of the extraordinary patience of the Lord. I also hope that it helps us to have a clear understanding of what salvation experiences do and do not have to include in our day today. The big so what of this this morning is twofold. The first is this. God has extraordinary patience and glorious purpose in calling his people to himself for the account of his will. Extraordinary patience and glorious purpose in calling his people to himself for the accomplishment of his will. And it's more than likely that this morning, whether among us here in the room or watching online or listening to the podcast some other time, that there are individuals listening to this who have not been saved. I've been praying over the course of this week that this morning and this sermon and this text and the work of the Spirit in and through all of that would be the means by which God's extraordinary patience takes hold of those who aren't saved and draws them to himself. He's extremely patient and kind and gracious in doing that. And yet there's also those here this morning who have been walking with Jesus for some length of time. What's What's the so what of this for those in that boat? Is it just that we might have some more information about salvation and what it entails? No. It's that in our relationships with others, we can rest in the Lord's extraordinary patience and glorious purpose. We can rest and trust in that patience as we interact with coworkers, friends. We can rest and trust in that patience as we pray for or minister or give to work among the nations. We can rest and trust in that patience, parents, as you seek to help your children understand who Jesus is. We can rest in and trust in that patience with those that we disciple or mentor. So we're just going to walk back through this passage and pull out what's broadly universal and true about salvation. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners 
to Jerusalem. Broad universal truth number one. Salvation is only available to sinners. That's it. Sinners are eligible for salvation. No one else. Good news. There is no one else. Here's the problem though. The spectrum is not there are people so sinful that they can't be saved and then everyone else on this side. The really good news is that there's no sinner who's like too sinnery to be saved. You can't sin yourself so far onto this side of the scale that you tip over to where the Lord's grace can't save you. The problem is on the other side of the scale in the belief that you're so good you don't need to be saved. It's that person stuck in that belief who has rendered themselves unable because they're uninterested in being saved. Salvation is available to sinners and all sinners are eligible. Look at the way the rest of this passage talks about Paul. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is Ananias speaking to the Lord. Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Look at verse 21. This is everyone else in Damascus. All who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on his name and he came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? Look at verse 26. This is everyone in Jerusalem. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe that he was a disciple. How did Paul talk about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst. I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience. Everyone understands who Saul is. Ananias, the rest of the believers in Damascus, the apostles in Jerusalem, everybody's clear. Saul is, Paul is clear upon reflection. This is, this is who I am. And the good news here is that God is extremely patient in calling sinners to himself, but he only calls sinners. And that requires a recognition that that's who we are. Look at verses three and four. As he, was, or as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Universally broad truth number two, salvation begins with God's initiative. Now, I'm not trying to make a statement about predestination or Calvinism. I'm simply trying to be faithful to what is in front of us in this descriptive situation and what is presented to us in the rest of Scripture. God takes the initiative. Ephesians 2 that Ryan read in the middle of our opening time in music. We were once dead and God made us alive. It wasn't, well, I was once dead and I made myself alive. God made us alive. You could 
take this initiative and look at it from the long sweep of eternity. In eternity past, God chose Saul. Look at the way he states this. This is God speaking. Chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to him, that's Ananias, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Somewhere in eternity past, God chose this man, Saul, to do that work. Paul, Saul, Paul, says the same thing in Galatians chapter 1. This is what verses 13 through 17 say. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of are beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. God said to Ananias, I chose this guy long before this journey to Damascus. Saul looks back. He's writing his letter to the Galatians and he says, God chose me way before I was knocked to the ground by a blinding light. But God also took the initiative in human history. God initiated the sending of Jesus. Humanity did not reach out to God and say, hey, we got a great idea for solving some of the problems down here. What if you sent a son who went to the cross for all of our sins and then you resurrected him and he triumphed over sin and death and then he ascended gloriously to the throne beside you, God, and then he could save us. No, that's not how that worked. God in eternity past determined that the son would come to die on the cross. That's his initiative, his activity, his plan for accomplishing his will. And in the moment here, God takes the initiative. It's God who sends the bright light. It's God who speaks first. Look at the way he talks to Saul. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That sort of double name address is used something like 15 times in scripture. Sometimes it happens from God to a human. Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. God stops him and says, Abraham, Abraham. God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, begins by saying, Moses, Moses. God calls Samuel when he's very young to be priest uh, at the temple for Israel. He says, Samuel, Samuel. Other times in scripture, it's used when one human speaks about another. For instance, David's son, Absalom, is killed. And David cries out, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Jesus uses it repeatedly. The Mary and Martha story, while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha is busy trying to take care of everyone there in the house and she wants Jesus to rebuke Mary, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he stops outside the city and he weeps and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When he's hanging on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God. There's like an intensity of relationship in that double named address all throughout scripture. And so how is it 
that God addresses Saul, it's with that double name, intensely personal and relational. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, God, with all of his grace and all of his kindness and his unlimited long-suffering calls out in this intensely personal way. But notice that it's not really an invitation. God doesn't say, hey, Saul, what do you think about this? Saul does not say, hey, God, maybe you could come and save me now. That's not how it works. Saul does not invite God into something here. God's already there, already working. He has a plan set out from eternity that he's secured in his son, and now he's enacting that plan as he calls to Saul intensely personally. Saul's a sinner, a big one. On the scale, he's somewhere on this side. And so he's eligible now, and God takes the initiative. Verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul said. I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Salvation creates the recognition of Jesus as both Savior and Lord. And it's actually Ananias in this passage that's helpful for us and illustrative for us. Twice, Ananias addresses God as Lord. If you've got Acts 9 open there, look at verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man. Two times, verse 10 and verse 13. Ananias addresses God as Lord or Master. Both times, it's in the context of Ananias wrestling through his own obedience to what the Lord is calling him to do. When Paul is knocked to the ground by God's initiative in this blinding light, what does Paul say? Who are you? Lord. Master. Through this experience on the Damascus Road, Paul is going to recognize Jesus as Savior. That is somewhat of the easier side of things. As the Holy Spirit helps us to understand that we're sinners and that we need a Savior and that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved, we begin to cherish the thought of Jesus as our Savior who went to the cross on our behalf. It's the Lord, Master side of things that's really difficult. In our flesh, we wrestle with the idea that this Jesus who has saved us now is master over us. You could accurately say that the process of sanctification is the lifelong ongoing process of both recognizing and living in response to Jesus as Lord. That's a lifetime trajectory for a follower of Jesus. You know something of it in the moment of salvation and then you spend the rest of your life trying to work out the thousands of implications for that in all of the ways that you live. Verse 17, Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Salvation seals us with the Spirit and brings us into the church. Catch this. The first recorded thing that Ananias says to Saul. Now, bear in mind, this is the same Ananias who just some amount of time ago was wrestling with the Lord because he knows that this man Saul is a bad and dangerous man. He does not want to go to this house where Saul is. The Holy Spirit does something in there. Ananias is obedient to what the master Lord has to say. He goes to this house. He places his hands on Saul. And what's the first word he says? Brother. Think about that. Flip the perspective. You're Saul. You're having what has got to be a fairly disorienting experience. You were headed to Damascus in order to literally grab followers of Jesus and drag them 150 miles back to Jerusalem so that you could put them on trial and potentially kill them like you killed Stephen. You get blinded by a light. You see Jesus and he speaks to you. He tells you to go to Damascus, but now you're not going there to retrieve followers of Jesus. You're going to the home of one, and a man is going to come to you and place his hands on you so that you can see again. You haven't eaten for three days. You're thinking about all the implications of all of this, what it means in regard to your family, who's probably very proud of you for being a Pharisee, your friends, your career. You're extremely zealous for this the traditions of your ancestors is what it said in Galatians. Your whole life is wrapped up in this. And now here comes this man, Ananias, and he walks in and he sets his hands on you. And the first word he says is not dangerous man, Saul. I hope this is all for real. Let's take a little more time and find out if there's fruit and then we'll decide. No, he sets his hands on him and he says, brother. And right away, Saul understands for all that he may be laying down to follow Jesus, he's gaining an entire new family. Think about how powerful that moment is. And Ananias tells him he's going to be filled with the Spirit. When we're saved, the Spirit fills us for the first time and we're sealed with his presence. And there can be further outpourings of the power of that spirit over the course of our lives. But in that moment, the spirit comes into us for the very first time. We're sealed and set apart as one of God's people, one of his members of the church. And you're brought into that. Acts 8, or chapter 9, verse 18. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. The next broadly universal truth, salvation produces a bent toward obedience. One of the immediate works of the Holy Spirit is to rewire our natural disposition. We go from being people driven by our flesh to being people who long for obedience. Now, if Jesus is Lord and Master then we'll do what he says. And that has tons of different implications and applications in our lives. But for Saul, in this moment, he gets up, he goes where the Lord tells him to go, and then he's baptized. And you're getting something of an outwardly visible uh, picture of what he has internally recognized, and that's that Jesus is Lord. His acts of obedience 
help us to see that. Now, it does not mean that once we're saved, we're fully and perfectly obedient for the rest of our lives. We're going to wrestle with that. But our bent is toward obedience. Disobedience grieves us to some capacity. That's what it is to be saved. Verse 20. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Salvation engages us in the advancement of the gospel. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God. We are all active participants. For Saul, he immediately begins proclaiming Christ in the synagogues of Damascus. Look, apparently it was readily known that this man Saul was headed there to drag Christians away. Now here is Saul standing in the synagogues preaching about Jesus. We're told that he's confounding the Jewish people in Damascus, that he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. In Jerusalem, a little bit later, he's speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that we all have to preach like Paul does. But it does mean that we are actively engaged with our gifts in God's global eternal purpose to make his name known to the ends of the earth. That's normative Christianity. That's not just something that Will Sheehy does. That's not just something that Emmanuel Chaganda does. It's not just something that Pastor Abraham does in India. It's not just something that I do because I'm the pastor here. When we are saved, we are swept up into God's global purpose to proclaim the glory of his name among all peoples to the ends of the earth. That looks a lot of different ways according to your gifts and the place where God has called you. And it doesn't need to be this guilty thing. Like the pastor starts talking about evangelism or missions and everybody gets this like guilty thing in their heart because I haven't shared recently or whatever the case might be. No, you get to do this. To borrow from what Will Sheehy said a few minutes ago when he was up here. He wants to open up his sails and get caught up in the wind stream of heaven. Like this is what God is doing on earth. He's proclaiming the glory of his name to the ends of the earth. And when you are saved, you get to be part of that. It's a gift and a privilege. It's part of what happens when we're saved. Last, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Salvation is the means by which God grows his church. This is how God grows the church. He saves people. In his unbelievable patience, he takes the initiative to reach out to sinners and to save them. They're changed. They're converted. And notice where this is happening by this point in the book of Acts. It's been happening in Jerusalem. It's happening in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And Luke wants to make it undeniably clear as he writes this. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work. It's not about Peter in Jerusalem. It's not primarily going to be about Paul among the Gentiles. It is about the work of the Holy Spirit. God's grace and his extreme patience to draw people to himself. The human figures in the book of Acts are the means by which, the vessels by which this happens. Same is true today. The Holy Spirit who's bringing peace amid persecution, providing strength 
to the church, encouraging believers, growing it in number. The same is true today. Universally, broadly true about salvation. Salvation is for sinners, begins with God's initiative, creates a recognition of Jesus as both Lord and Savior, seals us with the Spirit and brings us into the church, produces a bent toward obedience, engages us in the advancement of the gospel and is the means by which God grows his church. Now just for a couple of minutes, the flip side of this. What must salvation not entail? Well, it doesn't need to be a sudden or dramatic event. It is that for Paul, Saul. But if you were to read forward in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, you see the salvation, or you hear about the salvation of two individuals, Timothy in verses one through two, and then a woman named Lydia in verses 11 through 15. We're told that Timothy grew up with a believing mother. How did salvation come for him? I don't know. But it's likely that that happens kind of like it happens for many children who grow up in the church over a number of years. We're told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to scripture. It's possible that that happened in one time there with Paul, but it also could have happened over a period of time. Acts chapter 17 tells us about the Berean church, that they were thorough and wanted to understand scripture. Personal stories of salvation that maybe you've heard or like our staff sat around in our conference room on Tuesday uh, afternoon and we had a conversation and different people shared how it is that they came to faith. And for some, they couldn't put their finger on one dramatic turnaround moment. Instead, there was something that happened over time. Salvation does not need to involve a literal seeing of Jesus. That's what happens for Paul. And there are frontier missionary settings where visions or dreams of Jesus are still taking place today. But to be truly saved does not require that someone see Jesus in the way that Paul does here. To be saved does involve a sense of seeing Jesus though. In the sense that we were once blind to who he is and now we see. Something like scales fall from our eyes so that we can see the truth of who we are and our need for a savior and Jesus as the only sufficient means by which we can be saved. Salvation does not need to involve particular emotions. Sometimes, and in some strains of Christianity, there's a pervasive thought that salvation needs to entail particular emotional displays. We're not told anything about what Paul feels in this. We don't get to hear the emotional responses of Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, of Timothy or Lydia in Acts 16, or of the palace guard that Paul mentions being saved in Philippians. For some, salvation can be highly emotional. For others, it may not be. And we have to be careful not to impose our personal emotional disposition during our salvation onto others. Oh, it was super emotional and I cried a lot. Therefore, everybody has to have that. And as I'm walking with my children, if they're not crying in their bedroom when we pray the prayer, maybe they're not actually saved. This wasn't emotional enough. That's not how it works. God draws people to himself and oftentimes our personal disposition or our personal temperament is a part of that. You might have one child who's highly emotionally sensitive and another who's highly intellectual and their salvations outwardly look different. But they're, you know, one's not more value, or not more uh, true than the other. God works uniquely in those ways. And last, 
Salvation does not need to involve the manifestation of particular spiritual gifts. Notice that we're not told anything about the spiritual gifts that come into play when Paul is saved or any one of the other examples throughout Acts that I've mentioned. The reason for that is because there's a broad range of gifts that the Holy Spirit brings into people's lives when he draws them to himself. He gives those gifts for his glory, by his will, and for the good of his people. He does so by his sovereign choice. Paul begins to preach. That's clearly one of his spiritual gifts. If everybody had to preach, I think like 80% of the people in this room would say, I'm out. I'd prefer not to be saved. Thank you. Not everyone is like immediately given the gift of hospitality. If like being saved meant that you had to be willing to always open up your home and host large groups of people, I would say, pass. (laughs) I'll sit quietly in my room, please, and not do that. God gives gifts by his sovereign choice to his people for his people's good and for his glory. And those look different. And we need not impose particular gifts upon someone in order to judge the veracity of their salvation. To conclude, what's the purpose of all this? Well, we must first ask the question, are you saved? Has there been a season or a moment where for you there was a recognition of the fact that you are sinful and need a savior. Whereby God's grace reached out to you and you responded in faith, believing in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Then you're swept into the church, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you get this new nature that's bent toward obedience, not perfect, but bent toward obedience rather than rebellion. You're brought into the mission and the purpose of God in the world. If that has not ever happened for you, this sermon and this passage of scripture and the example of Paul this morning might be an example for you of the extreme patience and kindness of the Lord toward you. I would invite you to have a conversation, someone who brought you, someone that you know that's part of this congregation, your parents, a pastor on our staff, we would love to talk to you about what it looks like to begin to step into and walk in that relationship with the Lord. On the flip side of that, the purpose of this is not to make someone question their salvation. The purpose is for us to rejoice in the Lord's patience toward us. Look, what we see of salvation in scripture is that the Holy Spirit changes us in an instant. You might not be able to pinpoint the instant. It might not be sudden and dramatic. That's okay. But there's a point at which the Holy Spirit changes us and then grows us for a lifetime. There's an awareness of our sinfulness, a thankfulness for the ever-present and steady initiative of God with us, a growing sense of what it means for Jesus to be Lord and Master, a deepening love for the people of God, the church, an increasing longing for and life of obedience and an ongoing commitment to mission, empowered by God and for his glory. And the way that happens is that the Holy Spirit continually makes the gospel look glorious before our hearts and minds. We see it once for the first time and then we see it over and over and over and over again as we grow in relationship with God. And the longer we walk with Jesus, 
And the more that the Holy Spirit is doing all of this work in our heart, then the more we understand the unlimited patience of God in saving us, but then in also growing us over the course of a lifetime. We're going to conclude with communion. If you're someone who's gonna pass this out, will you come and grab these trays and start to distribute these?